Stranger Rangers, this is Bree. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. We are living in full-fledged fall weather. Bring yes. on the sweaters. Yes. yes. Exactly I have my flannel I on. Today. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I... Mother Nature was like, um, first day of fall was yesterday. Let me just go ahead and hand you a gift on a silver platter, which she did a little bit last night. It was beautiful. <sighs> yeah, it was like the Glorious. first actual rain day. Roads mm-hmm. were wet for the first time. So that meant um, some bad driving out there for us. But man, to wake up to some smell of rain was just so good. It's so, the best. so good. Yeah. It's literally the best and I can't wait until like our landscaping and our complex comes through on Wednesday because then it's going to be like fresh cut grass mm. and, and rain, rain smell and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Super yeah. excited for it. Um. Well, before we get into my episode, I just want to thank you guys for all the birthday wishes. I'm officially in my mid thirties Um, and I feel great about it. I feel the best that I've ever felt like twenties were cool, but honestly, like thirties is where it is, where it's at. If you haven't hit your thirties yet, just know that I really, truly feel like your best years are yet to come. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Like I kind of feel like I have life figured out, but it's still a little bit of a shit show, but maybe it's just like coming to terms with that's how life is just supposed to be. Yeah. You're yeah. an adult now with adult money and it's okay. And you can treat yourself as much as you want. Exactly. Things have worked out. It's great. For sure. So, um, again, this is going to be another two-parter for you guys. It's one of those cases. I could have done a big one, but I am a big fan of a good little uh, cliffhanger. So we're going to break <laughs> this into two parts and drive you a little nuts for a week until part two comes out. And uh, maybe Patreons will get a little bonus and get the second part early because we're going to record everything today. So I won't be torturing Fatina by making her wait for uh, part two. She'll get to <laughs> she'll get to hear it suckers. all. Suckers, suckers. <laughs> um, so today's case is the murder of Wilma Plaster, Ooh. and. I was just kind of laughing at myself again, because I know I talked about this in a past episode that I've done. I don't know why Missouri cases just always fall in my lap. Oh. I've done so many around Missouri. Listen, there might be something to say be said about Missouri then, because... Maybe. I mean, it used to be Wisconsin for a while. That's true. But maybe Missouri's got... It will just... There's so many open areas. So much. Yeah. I mean, the Ozarks and everything. So, yeah, Missouri's uh, got quite a reputation as far as my uh, research goes. So, just to dive in, we're first going to talk a little bit about Wilma Plaster's life. She was born in 1923 in Ozark County, Missouri. And this woman was just like... Just somebody that you wanted to know. Like, everybody needs someone like this woman in their life. She was known for her kindness. She was super compassionate. People said that she just had a heart of gold. She was just one of those just 
extra amazing sure. people that can do no wrong, you know, always has the best of intentions, warm, welcoming, hospitality. You know. Always has a cup of sugar you could borrow. A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And send you on your way with a piece of banana bread. So Yeah, exactly. Like, like if you're new to the neighborhood, this woman is definitely baking a pie and bringing it over to your house for sure. So I know. Yes, please make it Mm -hmm. apple and don't forget the ice cream. Thank you so much. (laughs) So good. She, um, Wilma always encouraged her family to love God, to love others and to always do good things. So, you know, with her being a good person, she really tried to instill all of those morals into her children. This is like probably the most adorable thing about Wilma and her story. She met her husband when she was just 15 years old, which for, you know, 1923, 1930s is, is, you know, when she would have been 15, not that uncommon, you know, people met and married very, very young. Um, her husband at the time was 18 years old and they got married just two months before her 16th birthday. So she met her husband at a very, very young age. Um, it said that they most, they most likely met at the church that they both went to. So they had, you know, a lot of the same interests, a lot of the same upbringing and her husband did do a stint in the Navy. And when he returned home, he dedicated his life to becoming a preacher. So Wilma went from growing up to the church or growing up in the church to being, you know, a preacher's wife. And she really fully embraced and loved this role of being the wife to a pastor. I mean, she already had this very, um, you know, maternal, loving, love to care for others. And I think, um, not that this always has to be the case, but I could definitely see with where they were located and the times and everything like that. You know, if you're the wife of a preacher, you're like, you're really out and active in your community yes. and being this godly woman yes. and supporting, you know, your neighbor and all of that. And that's exactly what Wilma did. She embraced the role. She would go and visit people who maybe just needed company and were lonely. She would comfort them if they were grieving a loss, whether they had just lost somebody or maybe were really going through it. And furthermore with that, you know, she became a mom. And so she embraced this role of becoming a mother and her and her husband would go on to have four children okay. and then they would become grandparents as well. So Building this. Oh, so cute. I mean, just building this big life when, when I was reading and listening to, you know, her whole backstory, I'm just like, you know, this is out of like a Nicholas Sparks book or something, you know, but sadly in 1984, tragedy did strike their family. Um, Wilma's husband developed Lou Gehrig's disease and ALS, and he passed away just five months after his diagnosis. Oh, that's quick. Super, super fast. Um, I, yeah, so I don't really know a whole lot, a whole lot about either of those illnesses, but I do know that sometimes they can really, um, decline a person's health really, really super quickly. Right. I mean, in any case, in any diagnosis to have a five month period from being diagnosed to passing, that is super fast for anything because you don't have, 
don't have time to to come to terms with anything or to try and do anything really because it sounds like it's really progressed at that point. Absolutely. And that's got to be the hardest part is that, you know, you don't have a chance to stop and really get a grasp on reality. So, um, him and Wilma at that point had been married for 45 years Whoa. at the time of his death. He was, um, I want to say he was like 66 or something like that Yeah, when he passed. So, you know, she's spent her whole life with this man and she's now lost him. And Wilma, you know, for the first time in her life, kind of finds herself alone. Yeah. And... I just, I just couldn't imagine. I mean, I've been with my husband for a long time. We just had like our 13 years of being together. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 45 is just, you know, like. It's a third of our lives now. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It really is. So she knew him longer, way longer than she was even alive. A hundred percent. I mean. Longer than she didn't know them. Know him, I mean. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. She didn't exactly. know him pre-existing. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Fair to say I did not do good in math. Oh, you know, you're you're good at so many other things. It's fine. <laughs> math can take a backseat to it. It's all good. So bad. So, you know, poor Wilma is finding herself, you know, alone, widowed, and um. After her husband's death, Wilma makes a good friend at church Her with a woman. Her name is Janice Cook, and Janice is also a widow. So they kind of had this, you know, unfortunate circumstance in common, um, but it it allowed them to become fast friends because right. they were both in search they of bonded. some, yeah, just yeah. some form of companionship. And so Wilma and Janice just start living their best life. They're both in their 60s. They start having girls' nights. They go out on the town and go line dancing. And, you know, for the wife of a preacher, that's got to be a pretty big deal that now you're spending your nights out in the bars. I mean, line dancing. So go, Wilma. I mean, yeah, go her. Go you got to. You can have Shirley Temples at a bar. That's fine. exactly you don't have to drink. She wasn't misbehaving. She just, right. you know, that's where the party was. So sure. that's where the party was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. So Wilma and Janice were going out. They enjoyed meeting people. And plus it was exercise for them. So yeah. they they doubled down on that. And this would eventually lead Wilma to meeting a man by the name of Carl. And not too long after Wilma meets Carl, they start a romantic relationship. And right such a big step, you know, like that's got to be just such a life transition. You just lost your husband of 45 years and, you know, a little bit of time passes on. A lot of people wouldn't start another relationship, but she meets Carl and she, you know, he kind of sweeps her off her feet and Carl was super sweet to Wilma. He took really good care of her and things seemed to be looking up for her. And she's like totally ready to move on to the next chapter of her life. Go Wilma. I know such a big fan. But sadly, on October 3rd, 1989, um, Wilma's family is struggling to get a hold of her, which is very, very unusual. You know, um, 
we're talking 89. So we only have landlines here, people, but you know, she was easy to get a hold of at home. She was a little bit of a homebody, but she stayed in communication with her family, you know, about her whereabouts and whatnot. So she had spoken to her daughter, Linda, just a couple days prior and, um, said that they would talk in a couple days. And when Linda couldn't get a hold of her, she became super, super worried, you know, uncommon for them to go more than a couple days, especially when her mom had just, you know, said, I'll talk to you in a couple days. So there wasn't like a trip or I'm busy with an activity. It was the expectation was set. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So three days later on October 6th, 1989, this was out on the outskirts of Springfield, Missouri, a woman by the name of Jean Walker, who was a local school teacher was driving on her way home and she spots a large black duffel bag kind of lying a few feet into the road. And so she stops because she wants to move it, you know, and she pulls over and she grabs a duffel bag and she opens it and is totally taken aback no. by what she finds inside the duffel bag. There is a pair of hand garden shears. Oh, okay. A knife and bloody paper towels. So mm. she's kind of like these are really odd things to find. There's bloody paper towels like you know what the heck. Mm. And Wouldn't you know, as, you know, small town living happens at that moment when she's discovering this bag, she flags down a passing car who just happens to be the town's chief of police and her neighbor. And the butcher. And the butcher (laughs) and the mayor and the guy who bags your groceries at the one grocery store in town. (laughs) So... Amazing, right? You know, the chief of police just rolled up when you've discovered yeah, all of this. Of all people. Of all people. And while he's inspecting the bag, Jean kind of looks off and she also sees that there's a trash bag lying nearby. Oh, so no. they go over to this trash bag and when they open it, they are absolutely horrified because yeah. what they find in it is a human upper torso. The torso had been cut in half the body had been decapitated and arms removed. And so they instantly know that they have got like a super gruesome murder on their hands. That escalated like quickly. Yeah. We're just going to go go from line dancing to (laughs) holy shit. Okay. Cut up. Yeah. Yeah. Cutting a rug to uh, getting cut up. I had to. Holy shit, though. Okay. And when it said that the torso was cut in half, I believe that, like, you know, with the stomach, it wasn't like it was just cut off at the hips, that it was, like, midline belly. Where there's nothing to cut through, kind Mm -hmm. of. Exactly. Yeah. So they obviously dispatch more police to come down because they have a homicide investigation started. clearly. And while police are coming out to the scene, if you didn't think that that was enough, they did discover more stuff around this area. There was another bag, and in that, they find the head of a decapitated woman with a single gunshot wound to the back of it. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. 
Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Yeah. What the this- fuck happened? But you're gonna tell me. I'm I'm going to tell you. Holy shit! Yeah, I mean, could you? No, you can't imagine. Like, no, rolling up, and that's what you find. Mm -mm. I would be absolutely horrified. Probably off to the side, puking. Yeah. Oh my god. So at this point, they don't find um, any way to really identify the body. There's no wallet. There's no ID. There's no, you know. Tattoos or anything. Tattoos, necklace with an initial to at least give them a jump start on something. But all they can tell is that it's an older woman and that's it. So they bring in a sketch artist so that they can put out some form of a picture to the public to try to help identify her. I'm just like, oh my gosh, that poor sketch artist, like, here's a head, make her look good. Hopefully we can find out who it is, you know, but it did not take long for the police to start receiving phone calls. And Linda Baker, who I was talking about earlier, Wilma's daughter, receives a call about the body that had been found. And at this point, Wilma had been unreachable for a few days. And Linda just totally had a gut feeling that it was going to be her mom that had been found. So her and family immediately start calling other friends and family with the news and they reach out to the police with their concerns and the police ask them to come down to the station so that they can look at the sketch and see if that's their mom. God, what a nightmare. Such a nightmare. I mean, I, I truly feel like we all kind of have a little bit of a sixth sense and I can just only imagine yeah. that gut sinking feeling, getting a phone call being like, Hey, this was found. And you're like, Hmm, was supposed to talk to my mom yesterday. Just heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, she'd been missing for at least three days at that point. So exactly. I mean, one day, your phone's off. You didn't read your messages. You fell asleep with a glass of wine. What exactly? Second day, you're like, okay, you good? Mm-hmm. By the end of second day, third day, you're like, hey, neighbor, can you go check on them? Or police, can you go check on them? Have not been able to get in contact with this person. Totally. So, I mean, personally, I mean, as an adult that gone missing, I think that that's like that crucial part where you go from something's off to, okay, something's definitely wrong. A hundred percent. And then for that third day to be like, hey, and we found this for them. Mm-hmm. They had, they probably didn't even have time to think of 
where is she? What's really going on? Okay, let's look into other possibilities. It, they exactly. just got nipped at the bud with this horrendous, horrendous information. Yep. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So Linda and I believe her brother went down to the police station to go and look at the sketch and they show it to her and she's just like in denial. She's like, nope, that's not my mom. But deep down, she knows that it is her mom. You know, she just does not want to accept the reality of the situation. Mm. Um, The family, however, was spared of having to physically ID the body. They only ever saw this sketch, but they did submit dental records. And when those came back, it did confirm that it was 66-year-old Wilma Plaster. And I mean, the family is just in shock. They're like, we have the most wonderful woman that God ever created for a mother who would want to A, murder her in the first place and B, to leave her in such a disrespectful, gruesome, obviously personal manner, you know? Mm. I'm going to write down my prediction right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I'm just going to tell you that you're probably going to be wrong. Probably. But because who all. the fuck could have done this? It's uh, it'll make sense. The pieces will start falling into place for sure. Okay. So at this point, the investigation begins to try to track down who murdered Wilma Plaster. Um, investigators first dive into the autopsy, which, you know, confirms the gunshot wound to the back of the head, which wasn't mm-hmm. a surprise to anybody. They did determine that it was done with a 38 caliber and was ultimately her cause of death. Um, they further confirmed that all of the dismemberment had been done post-mortem. I would Oof. fucking hope so. Um, they speculated that this was done to make the body easier to transport and to dispose of, which totally, totally makes sense for anybody. Um, and given the brutality of the crime, like I was kind of saying, they also suspected that this was personal and not just some random stranger. Cause they could have ended at the gunshot and that's it. Exactly. If it was like a highway robbery or mm-hmm. if it was a bar fight, whatever. Well, not a bar fight. That wouldn't count. But you know what I mean? Like Totally. Okay. Yeah. It, it wasn't just a random spurt of the moment, like one and done. Like mm-hmm. whoever did this obviously had a plan that they wanted to make this body go away. Right. And just to throw out there, no matter where you live, not the side of the highway, that shit's always going to be found. Like, yeah. come on. So... Just throwing that my two cents in on that one. Yeah. So a couple of days later, they sit with Wilma's family to try to gain some insight about Wilma's life to see if she had anyone close to her or, you know, any way that the family could help lead them. And again, the family is shocked that anyone would do this to her, but they did bring up her friend Janice, who she had been going out with lately, okay. you know, a new friend. And they're like, this is really the only other person aside from direct family that our mom is close with. 
And the family tells them that she would know more about Wilma's day-to-day life over the span of their six-year friendship. I don't think that Wilma's children lived directly in town with her. It sounds like they maybe lived a little bit away. And I'm gathering that assumption just based off of, you know, they would only talk every couple days if they had been worried about not hearing from their mom. If they lived in the same town, I think they would have immediately gone over to her house knocking. You know what I mean? So it sounds like Janice was really there for her day Physically, right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, But although the two women, Janice and Wilma, were close, it said that they hadn't seen each other as often because Janice had also gotten into a relationship and was possibly going to get married to this man. So she got herself a boyfriend, you know, kind of stepping out on their friendship a little bit. And it's possible that this was kind of leaving Wilma feeling left out again and like, I lost my husband and then I had this best friend and now we're not hanging out as much because she's Mm -hmm. got this new boyfriend. Um, And this wasn't the only person that she had recently lost contact with. Um, A few weeks before Wilma disappeared, she ended her four-year relationship with her boyfriend, Carl. The man that she had been meeting out. Okay. Okay. This relationship ended because Wilma found out that Carl was married. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it it keeps getting juicier. Okay. Um, Carl did not live local in Missouri where they had met out at out at the line dancing bars. He lived in Arkansas, which was about an hour-ish away from where Wilma okay. lived. And Wilma is just absolutely heartbroken. I mean, I'm sure this woman is just feeling like she cannot catch a break. I'm pissed, probably. And if she is, yes. rightfully so. Okay. And I mean... Fuck Carl. A hundred percent. Yep. How dare you do this woman dirty because she is just... Or any as, woman, because or any your wife too, motherfucker. Sorry, that's true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, we're not yeah. we're not big fans of Carl Mm-mm. at all. So after these interviews, police decide that they're going to head to Wilma's home in Branson, Missouri, and the home looked and smelled pristine when oh. they showed up. No signs of a struggle. Like you know, everything was where it should be in a tidy home. They were, however, able to confirm that the shears and the butcher knife that was found in the first duffel bag on the side of the road did come from Wilma's home. The handle of the knife on the butcher knife matched the knife set in her in her kitchen, like one of those knife block yep. sets. So they're like, okay, we're on to something here. The murder weapon came, the potential murder weapon right. came from her home. So after they make these discoveries in the kitchen, they also discover that Wilma's car is missing from the garage. She drove a Chevy Beretta um, and they immediately put out an APB on the car. Like there's no reason that this car should be missing from her house. 
And with the car not in the garage, they were able to start searching in that area quite a bit better. And the, the garage looked cleaner than a garage should ever look. Okay. Um, it looked like it not relate. No. no. And you know why? Because garages are supposed to be dirty. So they're like, why the hell is this garage so sparkly clean? The garage is spotless and they luminaled the area. And what they found was obviously blood smear no. that had been cleaned up. Oh. And they could tell just from luminoli in the area that it was a lot of blood that had been cleaned up. Yeah. And they're, you know, it's appearing that this seems to be where the dismemberment took place of Ooh. Wilma. So they've kind of gathered some of this evidence and they Ooh. move on to speak with neighbors in uh, Wilma's neighborhood. And one of them recalls hearing a loud pop on the night of October 3rd. And now that's the day that um, Wilma last spoke to her daughter. Okay. So one of Wilma's neighbors recalls hearing a loud pop on the night of October 3rd. And this is the date that's noted that Wilma's family is having a hard time getting a hold of her. Right. So those two dates correlate with that. Um, the neighbor says that it was late at night and the loud pop had frightened him enough to the point where he went like looking in his garage to see if something had fallen to make such a noise, you know, like, like the broom falling off the wall and making mm. a loud slap or something like that. And it did not even cross his mind that it would have been the sound of a gunshot. Right. And another neighbor recalls seeing a silver car at Wilma's house over the last few days. She could recall seeing it twice. And at one point, the silver car had even pulled into Wilma's garage. And so police are like, okay, well, that's really interesting. That's we suspicious. have her car missing. And now there's a silver car that's been spotted, not just at her residence, but actually pulling into it. So they get a description of this car and they put out another APB for this silver sedan that the neighbor saw. So they've gathered all of this information and they're like, we need to start talking to people outside of the family. And so police track down our dear friend, Carl, and bring mm -hmm. him in for an interview. It seems like he's the number one person that they should be talking to given their, the recent breakup between him and Wilma. So they bring Carl in for his interview and furthermore, with wanting to figure out if Carl is a suspect, they're also wondering, you know, are we also potentially looking at a jealous wife? We found out that Carl was married. So. No. Yes. Who, who done ah, it? Who done it? Down. I, I figured that's who you're going to write down. They ask. Carl straight up if he had anything to do with Wilma's murder. And he is like, no, absolutely not. I was in Arkansas the whole time. Okay. They ask him about the affair and Carl claims that his wife had absolutely no knowledge about Wilma still to that day. Oh. 
However, they do verify Carl's alibi with his wife that he was in Arkansas. And now I don't know if Carl's wife ever did find out about Wilma or not, because I would be like, why are the police calling you wanting to know if you were home or not? What, you know, Lucy, you got some explaining to do, you know, like (laughs) what's, what's happening here. Why did I use that yesterday too? Did you really? Oh my God. (laughs) I Um, love that so so, much. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it sounds like he's a professional liar. So Mm -hmm. unless he was like, oh, something happened to someone from line dancing. If (laughs) his wife knew something about the line dancing that he was going down there and maybe she didn't want to go. Right. Sounds like an activity you would do with your significant other or your wife but um okay so what happened so they they verify his alibi you know all these claims they're like okay well his 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 alibi checks out you know his wife can verify that for him so they also look and yeah bunny ears They also find no records of Carl owning or renting a silver car. Like the silver car seems to be a really big part of that. And Mm. all of this information eliminated him as a suspect. He doesn't own a silver car. He didn't rent one. His alibi checks out. I'm sure they didn't fully scratch him off of their list at this point, but nothing is really adding up and pointing to Carl or his wife Mm. being the one to murder Wilma. If this is truly how she found out, can you imagine how mad his wife would be? Dude. And your ex-girlfriend's now dead. So there's a shit ton of questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. A hundred percent. So police move on from Carl and they turn to Wilma's, I won't say ex-best friend, but Wilma's best friend, Janice Cook. Sure. On on October 9th, this is three days after Wilma's body was found, they interviewed mm-hmm. Janice Cook. Now, despite some of the distance in their friendship, Janice also expresses her concern that she hadn't seen or heard from Wilma in a few days. So just like her family, she hadn't been able to get a hold of her recently. And they pretty much don't have a whole lot to suspect of Janice. And they believe the two women to have a very like conflict-free friendship and relationship. And so, you know, it's a pretty like clear cut interview. It doesn't really get too deep into much, but they asked Janice if she can think of anyone else who was close with Wilma, you know, like there's gotta be somebody that she was close with that would have done this. And Janice men- mentions the name of a new friend of Wilma's Shirley Joe Phillips. Wilma had also met Shirley at one of these country line dancing bars and Wilma was so excited to have a new friend with Janice not being around as much. And it just really kind of helped fill those holes of her loneliness. You know, she, she found a new friend and Janice said that Wilma and Shirley had become inseparable over the past few weeks and detectives at this point learned from Janice that Shirley drives a silver Cadillac. This is the most compelling what? information and evidence they've gotten so far. And Shirley is now the police's prime suspect. 
they also learn that Shirley has a very deep con artist path, which we will get into. And detectives wonder if Wilma could have been her latest target and kind of taken her for granted. Whoa. So I'm not going to leave it on a cliffhanger yet there for you guys. I'm going to give you a little bit more on this one. That would have been a good stopping point, but I'm going to give you a little bit more to cling on to. So on October 10th, this is now what four days after from found. From found. Mm-hmm. Police get a call from a woman named Nora Martin. Nora lived and worked in Harrison, Arkansas. This is about a hundred miles south of Springfield, which is where Wilma's body was found. And Nora is a friend of Shirley's. She tells police that she thinks that she has some evidence that they really, really need to come and take a look at. So police rush over to her home and Nora is just like, like a deer in headlights, like shocked and scared and shaking about what she's about to tell the police. She tells them that Shirley had come to her house and stayed a couple days with her. And when Shirley had arrived, she started cutting out the passenger side seatbelt of her car. And Shirley said that the seatbelt wasn't retracting so that that's why she was removing it. She was like, I don't have, you know, the time or money to fix it. So I'm just getting rid of the seatbelt completely. And after Shirley cut the seatbelt out, she suggested that her and Nora both go take their cars to a local car wash. And while they were there, Shirley vacuumed out her car three times and washed it twice. I don't know why you would need to take the outside of your car through twice, but that's what she did. So they go back to Nora's after they're done washing their cars and they were watching TV when the story of Wilma's body came on the news. And Nora said that Shirley became very upset and said, uh, my fingerprints are all over Wilma's house, which at the time, Nora admits that she didn't really think too much of it because, you know, Shirley had said that her and Wilma were friends. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess that would make anybody anxious of like, oh my gosh, my friend was just horrifically murdered. Like they'll probably go to her house. I've been there recently. My fingerprints are going to be all over it. You know, Nora just didn't really think too much of it. Sure. And Shirley ends up leaving Norma's house after a couple days. And this is when Nora makes a chilling discovery. She is out in her yard and she finds some trash bags shoved under her front porch. And inside she found hundreds of checks that belong to Wilma Plaster. Whoa. There was also bloody towels floor mats from the car and a receipt from a local Walmart for cleaning supplies. No. There was also a chunk of carpet that had been cut out from Shirley's trunk and it was incredibly bloodstained. And Nora is now sitting in front of police officers realizing that she could be friends with a murderer. I cannot imagine being in Nora's shoes. No, at that time. So that's where I'm going to leave it off with part one for you guys. Uh, When we come back to part two, we're going to dive into Shirley Joe Phillips past. And if she is or isn't the person who murdered Wilma Plaster, we will find out. Holy moly. 
Yeah. Is there, okay. Well, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. If you are a Patreon, you will get to know what happens sooner than the rest. Hopefully out by Wednesday, so two days after the original or the first part is posted, you'll get the second part posted on Patreon with videos included. If you haven't uh, gotten a chance to check it out, I'll do a a longer preview on some of the previous ones. Uh, We're trying to incorporate some of the pictures that are involved with the case. If you are a visual Mm -hmm. person, sometimes you do need those pictures to get a better sense of what's going on in the case. So we are trying to include those as best as we can as when, when they are available. So Check us out on Patreon. And speaking of Patreons, we do want to thank our new, our two newest Patreons. So first we have Jessica K that joined our Murder Lovers group. Yeah, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. And we also have Lisa K. Different K's in the last names, but just so <laughs> happens to be. But Lisa and Jessica, thank you so much for joining us over on Patreon. I hope you guys are enjoying the content and we're going to send out a um, nice little welcome card for you guys soon here in the mail so keep uh, an eye out for that and check us out on patreon.com and if you haven't already leave us a review five stars help so that other people can find these episodes like you awesome all right guys well tune in for part two next week and don't be a stranger we will see you then bye bye